This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. This week has definitely been a heavy one. Um, two particular things, obviously the, the school shooting in Uvalde, um, also last Sunday, late in the day, uh, a report dropped that was the, the end of a months-long investigation into the Southern Baptist Convention that uh, confirmed and showed even to a greater uh, degree the startling amount uh, of sexual abuse throughout SBC churches that has been uh, for at least two decades, kept uh, hidden, even while those seeking to report it, those being victimized by it, um, were being silenced and intimidated. Uh, my phone uh, began going off Monday morning, Tuesday morning with friends, other pastors, professors, and um, as it spiked up on social media and on the news once again, um, one expression of the body of Christ looks like a uh, sinfully dysfunctional circus in the eyes of the world. And the world gets to look in and go, see? <laughs> see? Nothing there. Nothing there for us to want. On the heels of that, Tuesday, the shootings in Uvalde, I got, um, I got to thinking this morning, and I wanted to run through you or run through with you a list just of some of the more prominent major school shootings that we've seen. Most of you will remember, if you were old enough to, April 20th, 1999, Columbine, the first of this major wave, something fractured inside of us, or maybe that revealed that something had already fractured inside of us as a nation. I remember exactly where I was when two shooters walked throughout the school there, high school killing 12 students and one teacher. Those shooters, both male, 17, 18 years old. We had Red Lake High School in Red Lake, Minnesota in 2005. Seven high school students killed. The shooter was 16. We had Virginia Tech in 2007. 32 victims. 32. The shooter was 23. December 13, 2012. Almost all of you will remember that almost unbelievable day when a 20-year-old shooter entered Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut, shot and killed 20 first graders and six school employees. I remember being broken for days and days over that. Parkland, Florida, Stoneman Douglas High School, 2018. 17 killed and 17 wounded. Shooter was 19 years old. Santa Fe High School in Santa Fe, Texas, May 18th, 2018. Nine students killed and a substitute teacher killed. The shooter, 17 
years old. In Robb Elementary School, Uvalde, Texas, this past Tuesday, 19 children killed, two teachers. The shooter was 18. We have a disease in our nation. It is undeniable. It is undeniable. Since 2020, since 2009, 2009, I guess, since 2009, we've had 57 times more school shootings than the next closest nation to us. We have serious, serious, serious problems as a country. This morning, I think these weeks are heavy because pastors know it is our task to bring hard words and healing words, to speak both prophetically and pastorally and are accountable before God to do so. Do we have a mental health problem in this country? Absolutely. Do we have a gun problem in this country? Absolutely. Do we have a problem in this country with a, a, a near obsession and amusement with violence? Absolutely. Do we have a problem in this nation with our families and our homes? Absolutely. Do we have a problem with our educational system? Absolutely. Do we have a problem with the church, big C in the United States? Absolutely. Absolutely. My sense of, of mooring and anchoring this week has come from the fact that by God's grace, the faith I have not only gives me a lens through which to understand what took place on Tuesday, which is simply the theology and doctrine of evil and sin, that sin so corrupts our being that evil is such a real force and reality in our world, that it helps explain at least to some degree, and helps us understand why someone can do what these young men have done. It's evil. It's wickedness on display. But the hope we have in Christ also gives us just that. Hope that we serve a God who puts back together broken hearts. We serve a God who shines light into darkness and who eventually brings light from darkness. We serve a God who can use whatever we walk through or experience not only for our good and his glory, but for the benefit of those around us and those throughout our nation. With that in mind, let's turn and let's hear a word from God, from Psalm 30, from Psalm 30. We're going to work our way all the way through uh, this psalm. It's not a long one. And what I want you to do is I, I, I want you, I challenge you this morning to put yourself before God, not to be defensive. Can I just say, church, we all share 
collectively in the guilt of a nation that continually sees this happening to the amazement of even the most violent countries in the world. None of us are clean. This is where we live. These are the people we vote for. This is the fabric of the nation that we not only exist in, but we help create by our existence. And this morning, God is calling us to decide whether or not we're going to take seriously the call to be his people at whatever expense that may come or continue simply to follow cultural trends and ways, the desires and inclinations of our own hearts and our own minds. Let's hear the word of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 30. We'll begin with just the first few verses. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. You did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help And you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. The psalmist starts out here acknowledging that he's got issues, that there's a kind of sickness, some thing that he's dealing with that is close to claiming his life. And we see here right out of the gate in Psalm 30 a commitment to glorify God and his name from the psalmist. A commitment to glorify God and his name. If you and I would hold to that same commitment in our life, it would have to be the lens through which, or the filter through which, everything that we say and do and see and support passes. Does this glorify God? Not does it entertain me? Not does it stir my passions? Not does it align me with the party or faction or tribe that I think is right? But does this glorify God and his name? The psalmist says, I exalt you, Lord, for, and here's why, you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. You cared for my life and my name, my reputation. This is almost an Old Testament picture of resurrection. You lifted me out of the depths, out of Sheol, out of the place where death rules and reigns. It's a picture of someone reaching into a body of water and pulling someone out. We can tell God, we can declare to God that we exalt him and his name because ultimately in Jesus Christ, God holds out to us the ultimate picture of this, of being lifted out of the depths, of living lives centered on ourselves, headed toward condemnation and death eternally, and God breaks in with the good news of the gospel and by his mercy we believe and we are saved. We're restored to a relationship with God and put on a different 
path. He says in verse two, Lord, my God. And, and when you see this all caps, Lord, in the Old Testament, he's referring to the intimate personal name of God, Yahweh. The God I know by name. The one I walk with. Not simply the God of my parents or the God of my grandparents or the God of my church. My God. The God I walk with. I called to you for help and you healed me. If there's anything we need to be doing collectively as the body of Christ in the culture and context where God has placed us, it is crying out to God that we first might be healed and that we might become healers. Men and women, students, classmates, coworkers, neighbors, who are intentionally sensitive to those around us who are hurting, who are lonely, who are lost, who are marginalized, that we could be the presence of Christ to them. One Old Testament scholar says about this language here that in the intimacy of communion, in the intimacy of communion lies the secret of answered prayer. In the intimacy and context of close relationship with God lies the secret of answered prayer. That God hears and he moves on behalf of his people. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Friends, this, this is the trajectory of the nation we live in. It is a downward spiral. Your neighbors and mine. And my fear is that the church, instead of being a stark difference has allowed itself to be so assimilated into the ideology and values of our country that there is in many real tangible ways very little difference between the way we live, the way we spend our money, the way we conduct ourselves relationally, the rhythms of our homes, Very little difference between us and those around us. There's a sickness in our nation. The psalmist faced this sickness, this need for healing in some way. It's general, it's not clear, but in some way. And he says, God, in my sickness, in my despair, in my depravity, I called out to you. And you answered me. And you healed me. This is the context for the commitment here to glorify God and his name. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great 20th century Baptist preacher, while speaking prophetically about the condition of the church in his own country, as he pastored Westminster Chapel in London in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, said this, it does seem to me more and more that the real tragedy today is the failure of the Christian church to speak, to speak from God, to speak the biblical message, and to speak it 
with authority. And that, I suggest, Lloyd-Jones goes on, is due to the fact that she so persistently fails to take her commands and her orders from the Bible itself, but rather takes it from her own thinking and philosophy. I think this same disease that Lloyd-Jones is talking about that existed in the church in the mid-20th century in England now exists pervasively in the church in our own country in our own time. Give you one quick example of this. There was an article headline this last week, Texas Church Worships God as Mother on Mother's Day. They sang, you're a good, good mother instead of you're a good, good father. And continued it both in, in sermon and in text to replace father with mother. Now I will say, any serious Bible student knows that Scripture gives motherly and feminine characteristics to God in places throughout Scripture. God is genderless. God is spirit. And yet, we're taught to refer to him in certain ways throughout Scripture. We're taught by our Lord to pray to him as our Father in heaven. Austin New Church says they're based on belonging, not beliefs. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem. The creative director, creative pastor, when asked about this, said, we profess that we all bear the image of God. But how can we see God in ourselves if we can't see ourselves in God? Is God only male? Is God only white? What possibilities does that limit for those of us whose identity markers are different? You go on to admit that the topic was daunting and full of landmines, including the risk of just setting up another binary by labeling God as female. About Psalm 23, this particular pastor said, David wrote as if God were father, but how could he not? That was the outermost tree ring of revelation during his time. But now we know better. We get to read our scripture with a more expansive method of interpretation. Even when David wrote to God as father, God was already mother. God was already both. God was already neither, even if David couldn't see it yet. That's a picture in our day of a church trying to take its commands and its orders from our own thinking and philosophy rather than from Scripture itself. Now, before any of us in here this morning feels proud or superior, on the other end of the spectrum of dysfunction in our culture, and I say all this to say maybe if we were bringing the light and love of God like he has commissioned us to, we wouldn't see people walking into our schools, children walking into our schools every other year and shooting a dozen of their classmates. So before we feel superior or proud on the other end of this spectrum are thousands of churches who've made themselves absolutely irrelevant to God, his kingdom, and the community around them by an obsession with policy, procedure, style, and tradition and the inner mechanics of their organizational life to the degree that they long ago lost any real sense of biblical mission or understanding that they actually exist for a purpose other than simply to exist. We need to hear 
a word from God in the psalmist that if we'll bring our brokenness to God in humility and honesty, with a repentant spirit, he will hear our prayers and he will heal us. I need it, and every one of you in here needs it. That's where we start. That's where we start. The psalmist goes on, though. Verses 4 through 7, he says, Sing the praises of the Lord, you, his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. What the psalmist is doing here is moving on from an express commitment to glorify God in his name to an acknowledgement of God's character. An acknowledgement of God's character, of who God is and how he operates. And he basically says two things, that you are a God who forgives and restores. Now forgiveness and restoration are not words used here. But when you understand what the psalmist is saying, these are the two things he's getting at. And you see here a series of contrasts of anger and favor, of a moment and lifetime, of weeping and rejoicing, of night and morning, of being secure or being shaken, of standing firm or being dismayed, of feeling a certain way versus being favored by God. Let's look at these. Verse 4. Verse 4, sing the praises of the Lord, you, his faithful people. The psalmist is addressing this. He's saying, it's it's not everyone around us. It's not everyone on our street. It's not uh, everyone next door. That he's calling to sing the praises of God, but to the saints, the members of God's covenant community. He's saying, as, as men and women who believe that we've been brought out of darkness into light, we've been transferred from the domain of death and condemnation to the domain of life and acceptance with God, not by anything we've done, but by God's mercy and love and grace and beauty and goodness poured out to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We ought to be people who sing praises to the Lord, who praise His holy name. Again, we praise Him. We praise His name because of who He is. He says, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. He's getting to the the character and the nature, the consistency of God. And often throughout the Old Testament, these words, anger and favor, correspond with death and life. The anger of God results ultimately in the death of sinful and rebellious human beings. And God's anger is justified. God could not be a God who loves if he were not a God who gets angry. He couldn't be a God who loves his creation and who creates human life intentionally and with purpose if he isn't angry about things like what happened in Uvalde on Tuesday. But his favor leads to life. And that lasts a lifetime. The psalmist is contrasting a God who's willing to be angry and willing to judge with a God who longs to bless and show favor 
whose saving favor is abundant. He goes on here and he says, when I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. What he's talking about here is his, his own haughtiness, his own human arrogance and pride. That in self-trust, with a spirit that was not in line with humility before God, he felt secure. I'll never be shaken. Any of you ever felt that secure and then life happened? You're like, man, I'm actually pretty awesome. Maybe you had a big win at work, or you came home, and your spouse really delighted in you for some reason. They'd spend, spend a lot of time in prayer or something. And you're like, I knew they'd realize what an absolute treasure I am. And then something happens. The psalmist says, I was in need of forgiveness. I was in need of forgiveness. Part and parcel of this sickness and this issue that the psalmist was dealing with, whatever it was, whether it was a physical ailment or something else, was a haughtiness of spirit and self-confidence that was inappropriate that he acknowledges. Verse 7, though, he said, Lord, when you favored me, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. He says, in contrast to how I felt and my comments and my attitude before, when this thing that almost took my life brought me down, I cried out to you. And you healed me. You also forgave me. And you restored me. You favored me. This is a, a picture of the psalmist admitting he didn't do this on his own. He, he didn't have the power to do this. That it was by God's grace and his mercy that he was restored. That he found God fav God's favor. And, and he, he pictures the feeling that he had being restored to fellowship with God. And being found consistent in his walk with God by God's grace and mercy to standing as firm as a mountain. The Hebrew's really tough here, but it's a picture of the immovability of a mountain. The immovability of a mountain. And he basically says, in my dependence, I actually became strong. We're not a culture that values dependence. But God says, there's no other way to be strong. It's amazing to me. I was reading uh, an article this last week, um, one of tens of thousands that came out from the Afghanistan war, and was reminded that even our most elite, seasoned, tier one combat asset troops can be stopped and their life ended by a little piece of metal the size of a green pea. A little piece of metal or lead or brass the size of a green pea is all it takes. We are, whether we like to admit it or not, extremely dependent. No matter how much you lift, how good you eat, how fast you run, whatever you do, some bacteria can enter your body that's so small it can't even be seen by the human eye, wreck you to a degree that in weeks your life passes from you. We are dependent. And the psalmist says, finally, I understood that my dependence actually is what made me strong. 
as I found favor in God. We have a, a whole group of young men and of men in our country who have no idea what it really means to be strong. And we have a crisis of young men who need to know this God, this God who pursues his people, this, this God who makes his people strong in their dependence. I was listening to an interview this week with a man named Michael Gurion, whose most recent book is called Saving Our Sons, A New Path for Raising Healthy and Resistant Boys. I don't know if Gurion is a Christian or not. He's a researcher, a psychologist who's worked uh, for several decades now in the field of gender studies, not like we would call it now but in terms of raising confident, healthy young women and confident, healthy young men. And he describes something um, that we're, we're seeing the harvest of reaped right now. That in the 50s, it was very important that we made this shift. And we began to talk about and we began to, to look at legislatively what it meant and look at academically what it meant for, for young women to be able to have a place in society that wasn't dictated to them by a male where they could pursue their passions, pursue the educational track that they wanted to, pursue the career that they wanted to based on the, the gifts that God had given them, the desires that God had given them. But he said, this is not the 50s anymore. Yet we're still spending all of, almost all of our academic money and our legislative money on women and all of our prison money on boys. Right now, girls go to college in greater numbers than boys. They graduate college in greater numbers than boys. They get not only bachelor's degrees, but master's degrees in greater numbers than boys. While boys disproportionately outnumber women going to jail and committing violent acts, falling out of school, quitting school, being distracted and disinterested. There's a crisis of young boys in our nation. And it's not, it's not going to be fixed by men teaching them how to be strong and do push-ups and shoot straight. We tried that. What gave us was a bunch of school shooters. It's going to be solved by men of God being men of God. Displaying the love, the kindness, the character of God, not only in our own homes and families, but reaching out and being willing to give our time instead of always taking three-day weekends, going to our cabins, going to our beach houses, spending our early retirements on ourselves, looking into instead, rather, the dark places of our society, the places that are lonely, the places that are broken, and bringing godly models, bringing godly relationships and roles into those places. So that gospel healing can come. The psalmist goes on though. He concludes with a tremendous word of hope. Concludes almost in worship as he's writing and his spirit is lifted up. He says, to you Lord I called. To the Lord I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit. Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Do you see the heart of the psalmist shifting to where his desire, his passion is toward the name and the renown and the person of God? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. 
you turned my wailing into dancing. This is, this is the joy that I hold this morning, that there will be a time in the lives of these families here for those who are in Christ when God will turn their wailing into dancing. There will be a time, as the psalmist says here, when God will remove their sackcloth, their, their clothes of mourning and pain and distress, and God will clothe them with joy. God will clothe them with joy as only God can do. Psalm says, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. What the psalmist is saying here ultimately is he's admitting an understanding that the supreme purpose, he's admitting an understanding that the supreme purpose of human life is the joyful worship of God and God alone. Is the joyful worship of God and God alone. Not God in success, not God in the success of your children, not God in your degrees, not God in your work ethic, not God and your nation, not God and your political ideology, God and God alone. He's saying, don't take my life, Lord. Don't take my life. Because my life exists to praise you. Will the dirt praise you? There's this passion in the psalmist. He realizes now, once he has been through this valley of pain and repentance, restoration by God, that his life exists to bring glory to God, to praise God's name and God alone. That is the only pathway back for us, is to realize that we're drawing breath this morning. God sustains your life this morning, that you might joyfully, with delight, Praise his name. Glorify his name. And in doing so, find the fulfillment and the purpose you're longing for. In Psalm chapter 1, or rather just Psalm 1, God reminds us that the path of wickedness and the path of faithfulness are not the same, and they don't lead to the same place. In a psalm that's familiar to many of you, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Who meditates on his law day and night. How are you right now with God's word? Are you in it consistently? It's the goodness of God that has chosen to communicate with human beings. And to communicate with human beings, God has to use words that human beings can understand. And it is the goodness of God that has so chosen in his sovereign province, providence to have those words written down as the Spirit guided millennia ago and then preserved across the years so that you and I with human minds and human words could understand who he truly is, who Jesus Christ is, and who we are in him. 
more than any time in human history, we have to be immersing ourselves in the Word of God because messages flow at us with a consistency and a volume that has never been known by human beings before. All day, every day, from cable news to social media and everything in between, you're getting message after message after message after message after message about what is true and right and just. And I'm telling you, you kid yourself and I kid myself if we think it doesn't influence us far more than we believe. We need God's word. Verse three, that person, that person who delights in God's word, who meditates on it day and night, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And we know what this looks like. Any of you that have ever flown have looked down and said, man, there's a river down there, not because you could see the river, but because you could see the trail of green snaking across an otherwise brownish landscape. And you knew that something had to be feeding that. Something was providing life. Verse 4, he says, Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. We're reminded by God that there are ultimately two ways in life. And that we can rest assured as the people of God who by God's grace and mercy have had our judgment dealt with for our sin in Jesus Christ, that God will ultimately right the scales. God will ultimately handle the injustice and sin and wickedness of this world. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Let's say, let's, let's say that together. Here we go. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Because of his great love. God doesn't tolerate you. He passionately loves you. As you are this morning, not some future version of you that's going to be better. Right? Going to be faster, smarter, and way less. You're going to read your Bible where you're going to memorize the Pentateuch. God passionately loves you where you sit this morning as you sit here. Because his love for you is based in who you are as his creation, as a redeemed child of God in Christ. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. He is able to hold you and carry you. He is able, thank God, to hold and carry those in Christ who are walking through the darkest days of their lives this morning. Verse 23, they, his compassions, are new every morning. How many mornings? Every morning. Thank you, Sharon. Every morning they're new. Every morning they're new. Great is your faithfulness. This is why we praise God. This is why we delight in God. This is why we not only have a lens to understand evil and wickedness, but we have hope. We serve a risen Savior who walked out of the grave, who defeated death. And we're now able to live different kinds of lives. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 
7, 6. He says, but now, now in Christ, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, the power here is the band begins making their way back up here to lead us in worship as we respond and reflect on God's word to us this morning. The, the reality here that Paul says is um, we're people who serve, intentionally or unintentionally. And as God's people, we're called to serve and commanded to serve. We're either serving under an old code of legalistic requirements or in Christ, we've been set free from that and now we serve. We serve God primarily as we serve one another and as we serve his world through a new spirit, not through an old written or legal code. Let me ask you to stand this morning. I've certainly spent this week reevaluating some of my own passions, my own commitments, my own sense of entitlement, and what I have a right to. I pray this morning for you that wherever you are and whatever you're feeling, in light of how heavy this week has been, that at this moment you could say with the psalmist, as a result of who you are and what you've done in my life, God, I praise your name. I exalt you. I lift you up. You could say with the author of Lamentations, God, I know. I know. Because of your great love, I'm not consumed. Your compassion never fails. You're able to sustain me. You're able to sustain all your people and your church. She will be victorious. No force, no power can ever stop the church and the purposes of God. God will see his purposes through to the end of human history as we know it. You can acknowledge that God's compassions are new for you every single day day. And you can say with the Apostle Paul, man, I've died to an old way of life and now I live in a newness of spirit that enables me, that calls me and empowers me to serve those around me in light and love. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.